Hi, everybody. Welcome to the OFM podcast where metabolic health matters. And again, I'm your host, Peter Defty, uh, founder of this whole offshoot of, of optimizing your fat metabolism, which what we've seen happens is it yields optimal performance, but optimal health, both in the long and short term. But today's guest today, we're going to take it down another rabbit hole and how metabolic health matters for mental health. And today's guest is Dr. William Save. Did I get that right? You sure did. Okay. Dr. William Save, who's an MD and a psychiatrist and with a really good broad background. And our story of how we came together comes out of his wife, Meg, signing up to be coached by us to not only run better, but get metabolically healthy. And, and yeah, I met Will at the JFK 50 miler and um, we started talking and kind of hit it off. And we're both a kind of, kind of guys who like to go down rabbit holes, shoot the breeze and, and, and are curious about the world around us and curious about, you know, these, these mechanisms that trigger things. So he, over the years, that curiosity has led Will to become more and more piqued about the impacts of this in terms of his profession, which is psychiatry. And for the audience, uh, Will's one of those guys that rarely prescribes drugs. He's got other avenues, and we'll talk about that. So this is, this is why we're doing this podcast, because when you optimize your metabolic health, build metabolic capacity... And, and this is all done by getting your lipid metabolism going optimally. Uh, this has huge impacts on on mental health. So, Will, welcome. And why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit more about you? And I'll kind of prompt you as we go. Okay. Well, I'm Will Sauve. So you you got it right. At least you got it about as right as as any English speaker ever does. We'll we'll give it that that qualification there. I have uh, I still have cousins in Canada whose English is quite limited, and and I think they grimace at the way even I say our name. So to be fair, you know, it's like. Yeah, but 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 if the, if your relatives in Canada grimace, then the French will grimace at the way the French Canadians say it. Correct. <laughs> That's, that, is, that is absolutely correct, and yeah, I'm definitely a Canadian. So we're we're going to get grimaced at in Paris for sure. So they, as you said, by by way of introduction, I'm a I'm a psychiatrist, and I think more importantly, I was I did all my training, and then I was a psychiatrist in the Navy, and the and the fun thing about that was that I went to the Department of Defense Medical School, which a lot of people don't know about. So I I didn't get a scholarship. I actually went to school in uniform you know, every, every single day for my medical school years. And then I, and then I did my residency at the, the Naval Medical Center in Bethesda, which was a combined program. And then, and then I graduated from residency in 2004, which meant I went directly to combat. There was basically no other way that was going to go. So you were, you, were, uh, you were attached to a Marine unit. I was, I was attached to the seventh Marine regiment, which was a, that was a relatively new, program at the time so it was a in a lot of ways it was a fun adventure because i wasn't i went over to theater i wasn't connected to a hospital i uh, my commander was the regiment commander not 
I, I did not have any kind of medical people as my command. I answered directly to the regiment commander and I was, I was the psychiatrist for all the battalions and all the other cats and dogs under the regiment and traveled around the theater. And, you know, to this day, I've, I've just kind of laughed to myself that, you know, other psychiatrists graduate from residency and they do a fellowship in child psychiatry or addictions or whatever other subspecialty they want. And I was the lucky kid that I basically did my fellowship in war because that that's what I did for two years after I graduated from residency. And, and this, then, was in uh, Iraq. this was in Iraq. This was in Iraq. Nice. So that just the, the luck of the draw, I never, I never got pulled to go to Afghanistan, even though that was, I mean, absolutely raging at the time, but I was, I was just attached to a regiment and that regiment deployed twice, you know, during my basically two years with that regiment. And then I, you know, and then I went on to the Naval Medical Center, San Diego, and I was deployed to Kuwait, which, you know, like technically that was a deployment, but I mean, I, I probably got the best steak I've ever had at a wonderful Argentinian steakhouse in Kuwait City. <laughs> so that paper was a deployment, but a, a totally different kind of experience. But well, And to a point psychologically, um, I remember during the first Gulf invasion, mm -hmm. a friend of mine commented, made the comment that the solution to the Middle East was to to make everybody rich like kuwait because they won't fight <laughs> i you know that's funny but i couldn't agree more i mean that's like people people don't want to do war when they have nice things uh, yeah and that's emblematic of here too right yeah yeah and it's like yeah the kuwaitis don't want to fight with anybody it's like they got they got starbucks and johnny rockets <laughs> and wonderful steakhouses and gucci and you know the avenues mall in Kuwait City has a, I think it's a Bugatti dealership in the mall. So that it's just this like spectacular place. And then there was going to be a, Meg was so mad at me over this deployment year because I'm away from her for nine months and I'm just sending her pictures of all this like fun stuff we're doing <laughs> every day. And, but, and I, every time I'm like, would you prefer I was being shot at? She's like, no. <laughs> and so we're back to having a good time. But we, all the officers for the hospital where we were deployed were, you know, we were going to have like a little party or something, you know, the officers mess and, and do something for morale. And my buddy and I were the ones tasked with like getting all the food. And we actually went to Dean and DeLuca in the Avenues Mall, which had opened like the day before. So we walked in there for their, their grand opening and the, the manager was this South African guy, and he was so freaking happy that two active duty like Navy guys came to a store. <laughs> and they they had a cheese sommelier. So we so we actually had like this massive cheese tasting so that we could, you know, choose the appropriate cheese plates for our little, you know, officers mess do that we were having whilst on deployment. <laughs> yeah, and then, then came the charcuterie, right? Well, yeah. And then, and then we went to the fish market and, you know, made a friend for life because we're like, you know, we're trying to talk through an interpreter and it's like, we need, you know, we need some fish. And the guy's kind of saying, well, you know, we, we have fish. This is a fish market. It's like, no, you don't understand. We need fish for 50 people. And then he's like, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> we were the biggest 
you know, biggest guys on the block. Like they treated us like kings. It was just wonderful. Yeah. Well, so that was your experience. So you had two deployments to Iraq, one to Kuwait, mm -hmm. and then you, you rotated back to San Diego. Correct. And then that is where, you know, that's where I fell in love with the, the main thing that I do now, which is transcranial magnetic stimulation. So I like, I trained to do it there. I was in charge in San Diego. I was in charge of the inpatient psychiatric unit, which was also kind of my thing. You know, it's like if, if I wasn't out in the desert with the Marines, I like to be in the environment treating like very, very acutely ill people. You know, that's the, the one thing I really don't like doing is sitting behind a desk. So I tend to, you know, I tend to avoid that at all costs. So I had the inpatient unit. I was also in charge of the electroconvulsive therapy program at Naval Medical Center, San Diego. And, you know, to this day, I believe that that's why they gave me the TMS machine because TMS had been FDA approved in 2008. The hospital bought one in 2010 which, I mean, they bought it because it's Naval Medical Center San Diego. They have to buy all the, if it's awesome, they have to buy it, right? Because it's Naval Medical Center San Diego. I don't think even the psychiatrist who was like my boss, the director, I don't think he knew what that thing was, but someone told him it had to do with electricity. And I think he literally said, well, then give it to Will. Like, is that, because Will's the only guy that likes that. Well, and this is, a, this is a good point. This is a good point to really start our conversation on. Is yes, I was your, your your guy. I mean, yeah, folks, we're going to go around and go through rabbit holes here. But this, you're a psychiatrist that rarely prescribes pharmaceutical interventions for psychiatric disorders, um, and we've had a lot of correspondence both verbally and through emails on on what is glaringly obvious to anybody that's paying attention that most of these pharmaceutical interventions are are have unintended consequences shall we say they might have an acute response like a lot of medicine it might have an acute response to get people out of a a hole that would result in death <laughs> but um, that doesn't correct the problem. So this is kind of where we want to go. And we, we'll talk about transcranial um, therapy and we can talk about S-ketamines later. But but this is where we really kind of want to uh, start the conversation is, is where most of psychiatry, mental health, mental health really and how it's being dealt with or not dealt with more accurately. Yeah, exactly. Now that one one small nuance, like not not to be a total hypocrite, right? In my especially in my days of running the inpatient unit, like I prescribed some drugs, but the the perspective there is that that's when that's when I would argue to your point about acute problems, that's when you're using drugs for what they're for. You know, the, the inpatient setting is where someone could get admitted to my unit acutely manic, just like in the movies. And I can come at them with both barrels of some, you know, very serious medication. And they might sleep for three days, but when they wake up, they're not manic. You know, like that, that's the kind of thing. Now, that's, that's where I would argue that when you use those medications, you use them 
extremely aggressively and for what they're for. And then, yeah, you can make, you can make a big difference. But right. And this is, this is, this is completely in alignment with what Dr. Kathy says about her work as a trauma surgeon and mm -hmm. an ICU intensivist. It's like yeah. there's a, acute interventions that work to get you out of a hole. Yeah. Um, and even, even the use of a statin drug in a myocardial infarction uh, to get the inflammation down mm -hmm. may be appropriate. And I'm, I'm like the biggest anti-statin guy there is, but I do realize there are applications for them in that acute situation, but the long-term consequences. So that alignment tends, you know, from what I'm seeing as a lay person who tries to keep an arm's length from the, you know, the healthcare system is that, as Kathy says, these interventions are, are literally life-saving in terms of that acute response, mm -hmm. but long-term, they don't address the root cause. Well, long-term, don't, don't address the root cause. And then in even worse than that, like one of the problems you have in American psychiatry, if we're not in an inpatient setting, right? And that's, you know, mania and acute psychosis are what you would call a psychiatric emergency. You know, that's that's the kind of situation where if someone is, you know, 21 years old, a first psychotic break, and they are severely psychotic, that person is losing brain right in front of you. Like if that every hour that that patient is allowed to stay in that state, their brain is dying. Like that's the perspective that, you know, that I tried to teach my residents when they're in the inpatient setting. So then, yeah, if you're you're going to solve that emergency with an intervention that is pretty freaking toxic, but but in the moment, you know, we we stop the brain from dying more. You may have just bought that person five good years of life, you know, on the end by stopping that deteriorating process. But the vast majority of the patients that aren't in the inpatient setting, you know, the the vast majority of people that come to me now with you know chronic depression is going to be my my main bread and butter well they're they're taking antidepressants not only do these do all antidepressant drugs that are currently fda approved in the united states all of them only really work about a third of the time like that that's a famous 2006 study called star d literally they all work about a third of the time maybe 35 percent if you're lucky and that's when it comes to antidepressant pills, that's literally as good as it gets. And then I have patients that come to me that have been taking these pills that didn't work for them at all. And they've been taking them for 20 years. So they're taking a pill that isn't really helping or if it helped at all, they went from being severely depressed and suicidal to being 20% less depressed and maybe not suicidal. That like That's as good as it's ever gotten for them to have like chronic, you know, SSRIs and SNRIs and all the other, you know, antidepressant drugs and maybe even augmenting with antipsychotic drugs that have a risk for causing metabolic syndrome and so on and so on and so on. And they're not even close to better. You know, the, the best you can say about them is that they're less bad. <laughs> and that, like that, that's kind of the frustrating thing that we're in, I think, with the state of psychiatric care. Right. And some, some, some of these medications can also, you know, in the, in the setting with certain people, they can backfire. And I've certainly seen this where it actually has the opposite of the intended effect. 
Well, it's the opposite of the intended effect and the you know, even worse than that. So we're, you know, there's a big warning, right, on on all of the antidepressant medications that, that they might actually induce suicidal thoughts. Um, and, and then actually there was a terrible trend in the United States where that, that was considered to be a particular risk in adolescence, right? So you had some of the- And young males. Yeah. So some of the SSRIs, they put this big warning, class warning on all these drugs. You give it to an adolescent and there's a risk for you know suicidal thoughts because of that. And then the, the official story is that you know, the field went back 10 years later and looked at it. Well, suicide in that population went up. And the belief is that because of that warning, doctors all over the country were afraid to treat depression because they they put that warning on antidepressant drugs, but there was no do something else you know, on the end of the sentence. So we now have reason to believe that legions of adolescents in the United States for about a decade just weren't treated for depression at all. And that because people were afraid to use the drugs because of the warning that it could cause suicide. And it actually looks like more kids died during that time frame from lack of treatment. So that, you know, there well, you go. And there you go to, to a point, lack of treatment, whether it's the SSRI or therapy or, you know, changes. And this gives us a thing, a good segue into, you know, how significant metabolic health is uh, mm -hmm. for mental health. Huge. Well, and that, and I think it's getting a lot worse. <laughs> the, right. As the metabolic health deteriorates, I mean, on a cellular, you know, I look at things on a cellular level as a biologist and, and it's like I say, you know, glucose glycolysis is your fight or flight fuel, mm -hmm. triggers stress, cortisol, um, all the things that, that, you know, would put one into an anxious or depressed mood because you're going up and down on that blood sugar roller coaster. And, you know, it's, it's like beta oxidation. If your cells are primed for beta oxidation, it's like, you, you know, like, you know, you eat a big steak, somebody kind of, kind of comes at you uh, about something. It's like, yeah, who cares? Yeah. I'm all full of steak right now. It's like, <laughs> nobody, nobody can really get me down in that moment. The, uh, there within the last 36 hours, I learned kind of a, a new little fact oh, cool. that, that is, that is now it's, I don't get upset, but, but if I did, this would upset me because it's like the, the implications for what I'm doing and that are, she deserves a shout out. Are you, are you familiar with Dr. Georgia Ede? Absolutely. So yeah. that was, she's, she's got the diagnosis diet and she's, she's really yeah, big, yeah. big on talking about the toxins in plants that trigger psychological, uh, you know, manifestations. Yeah, so she just like she recorded not very long ago, kind of a big updated lecture and, you know, for CME. So I, I listened to the whole thing so I could get the credit. And one of the one of the factoids that she dropped in there had to do with elevated insulin. And I believe it was insulin and it might have also been related to inflammation. Obviously, I got to go back and listen to it again to get it exactly right. But the end result was a pathological like stimulation potentiation of glutamate. So she was really talking about like the the GABA to glutamate balance, which I, I 
Okay, so 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 this is important that you kind of break it down, the whole GABA and glutamine, and what does that mean in terms of how it manifests itself psychologically with with in the real world so we can all understand it? Yes, yes, yes. And the so the 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 grossly oversimplified answer <laughs> so that we don't get you know way too pedantic is GABA, right? Gamma amino butyric acid, right? GABA is the brake pedal right if anything i mean it's a little bit more complicated than that but yeah, yeah. You know, gaba is what turns things down alcohol basically kind of does a lot of what gaba does benzodiazepines valium ativan xanax they do a lot of what gaba does so that tends to turn things down and then glutamate is the gas pedal right so those are so those are now all the cool kids in psychiatry are kind of putting those two things together that you know gaba is like this and glutamate's like that where it comes in for me is that glutamate also has a lot to do with neuroplasticity, right? So it's the it's the arousal, but it's also the learning and the potentiation, and we can get you know neurogenesis and neuroplasticity out of this. Now, Dr. Ead's point was that these you know hyperinsulinemia, the inflammation, and it's really kind of overstimulating glutamate, and the GABA is being left behind. And the concern, and I absolutely, completely believe that we're seeing this in real life, you know, it's putting the brain in kind of a constant arousal, constant anxiety, fight or flight, all those things. And I think it's a, I think it is kind of a, a good characterization of the fact that I don't, I don't think I know a single 24 year old who doesn't seem to have anxiety. I mean, they, they, they talk about it. All the, all the young people that work around me right now, if anyone talks about not having anxiety, they seem to feel that's odd. Like They're the they, outlier. They find that interesting. Like, what do you mean no anxiety? <laughs> For them, it's just, do I have a little anxiety or a lot of anxiety? But the reason why I found this information so upsetting is that esketamine that I've taken on, you know, as the kind of FDA approved version of ketamine treatment for depression, well, the whole mechanism of action of that drug hypothetically is predicated on disinhibition of glutamate like we're and that's it's neuroplasticity so the idea is that you block that nmda and methyl d aspartate receptor which disinhibits glutamate action which brings about all of this kind of wonderful arousal and, <laughs> and you know yada 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 depression gone and it works well and it's it's great but suddenly i'm thinking like if I have a person with metabolic syndrome and hyperinsulinemia and the depression and the anxiety that is starting to look inevitable to me, if they have metabolic syndrome and hyperinsulinemia, and then I give them esketamine, am I just throwing gas on a fire? <laughs> if they're, you know, if they're already hyperglutamatergic because of all of this inflammation and hyperinsulinemia. And that 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 could be a so it could be a ketamine could be a misdiagnosis because you're missing that and all of a sudden you have this push on the the glutamine and then when the crash comes it's it could be devastating. Well, that or I, I I'm even wondering clinically speaking that this is the upsetting part is I'm trying to think about how I'm going to like do this in my practice, but clinically speaking it might it might actually become mandatory to solve metabolic syndrome before we could start esketamine. 
Yeah. And that, and, you know, maybe try to explain that to my patient that way. Right. Like right now the house is on fire and esketamine is the gas. <laughs> now we put out the fire and we only have a fire in the fireplace. Gas is a real good idea, but, but I got to get the house fire out first. And that, and then what's interesting is whether or not I'll be able to make a depressed and anxious person understand that because that's its own challenge you know, to try to have that conversation with someone who's in a lot of distress. Yeah. Um, this, this poses, I've got a lot of, my brain is, the glutamines, the gas pedals down because I'm, all these questions now are coming up in my head uh -huh. on these, the mechanism, but um, yeah, let's talk a little bit about this because just even the basic level, what you're talking about insulin, I've got this, when I put my tin, tinfoil hat on, I'm almost, you know, this is the conspiracy theorist in me, but, you know, in a standard panel, there's two, two basic tests that are never ordered unless you specify and fight for them. Mm -hmm. And that is fasting insulin and 25 hydroxy vitamin D. Yep. Uh, with a standard panel, you know, standard panel, standard lipid panel, and a fasting insulin and a 25 hydroxy vitamin D, you can, my understanding, or at least my, my perspective on this is you can make a very basic but solid evaluation of where somebody is uh, metabolically uh, because the, because what we have here is a context issue because in the context of where we are with the population wide, with the standard American diet, with too many chronic amounts of carbohydrate and not enough sunlight, you have, you have a lot of the population that may have blood, good blood sugar control, but they have elevated insulin and they have low vitamin D. And what mm -hmm. I see like in cardiovascular disease, just as a starting point is if you're with the population, most of the population has low vitamin D and high triglycerides and high fasting insulin, which if you're, if you're that person, you're on the road to cardiovascular disease. Yeah. Well, whereas, whereas misnomer of pre-diabetes, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we're going to go into that because in your realm of stuff, you know, there's type three diabetes, right? Yes, correct. Right. Okay, so but in the context of low triglycerides, low fasting insulin, and adequate vitamin D, which Peter's level is fifty or above, not the, the mm -hmm. standard reference range is twenty to thirty to a hundred. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's like 50 to 100 is where I, I like to see people. I'm, uh, I'm under the impression that's what all the cool kids think. <laughs> I, I, I came up with this back in 2010 when I read a ton of stuff of Michael Hollicks and other people and some people doing experimental mega dosing. And, yeah. it just, and, and what we saw with athletes is the moment we got their vitamin D elevated, they could burn fat at the levels they needed to to get that paradigm shift in their, their fueling. But mm -hmm. it also has huge impacts, you know, on on cognitive skills, including, you know, mental health. Huge impact on cognitive skills. And then that, you know, what with the events of the last three years, I've, uh, you know, I've changed my uh, reading habits a little bit. And that I read that with adequate vitamin D, even the junctions between your epithelial cells are tighter. 
Have you heard that one before? No. So you are less likely to get any kind of infection through your skin just by having adequate vitamin D. You, you actually get a more optimal epithelium that protects you better. Oh, that's that's so cool. Yeah, it's freaky how how useful vitamin D is. <laughs> well, and vitamin D is a sort of a marker for a whole bunch of things to going on because if you start to read the research, mm -hmm. vitamin D researchers out there that sun sun synthesized vitamin D, um, there's probably ten or twelve other compounds being produced in conjunction with twenty five hydroxy vitamin D, and it right. you know it has it has all the benefits of a steroid with none of the downside effects and even more benefits than steroids do it's it's sort of like a lot of things that occur naturally and you know what we found is because most people can't get the sun exposure they need you know we just go with the d3 um you know supplementing but try you know try to get people to get as much you know adequate sun sun exposure as they can yeah exactly i the yeah i i started working a lot harder on on getting the adequate sun exposure myself I, I call this particular practice mowing my lawn. That's the yeah. uh, that's that's the way I decided to go after it. Yeah. Well, and yeah, you know, to a point when you're out there doing work and say you have your shirt off and you're in shorts during the summer mm -hmm. and you're doing that for say 30 to 40 minutes without sunscreen and sweating, you're you're you know, especially when you're fat optimized, you're you're going to be fairly safe. I think that what's happened has been a compendium of things which will go back to the mental health but like with the whole scare about skin cancer mm -hmm. you had you had people on high carb low fat diets so their metabolism was screwed up mm -hmm. so their their cell wall fatty acid composition was not in the best shape right um and so you have that and then so all of a sudden you got skin cells getting fried and going cancerous so all of a sudden people don't don't expose them they're all scared of getting skin cancer but then all of a sudden you got this problem with calcium deposition in the soft tissue instead of the bone matrix right so then you add calcium the the the, the obvious the obvious frontline thing is you add calcium supplementation well without the sunlight or the k2 you're not depositing it in the right place and now all of a sudden you know the silent killer in women is heart disease um right, right? and, and it's it just kind of like it's a, it's a great business model that's all i can say yes <laughs> and, and not only that as you going back to where where you're coming from you know not adequate sunlight is is you know that it's it's correlated to depression and anxiety if you if you're you know and I, I have a, this is, this is Peter's wild thing, but this is you being in the Middle East. Let me, this is one of these Peter connections. Mm -hmm. um, I have this theory that because women in the Middle East are made to cover up, mm -hmm. they are low in vitamin D. So mm -hmm. their, their children are, are low in vitamin D in utero. So they, adolescent males grow up to be, you know, insufficient in vitamin D from that that original in utero programming, which makes them much more subject to, you know, doing these extreme things. I think, I, I think that's a fair 
I mean, that's a fair assessment. I'll I'll kind of add to that that uh, malnutrition is just pretty rampant across the board too. Yeah, and and vitamin D is one of those is malnourishment. So one of the one of the things, well, malnourishment, and then they you know out in the part so in the Al Anbar province of Iraq where I was, every everybody that's from there is just little. Right, we just kind of have the like remarkably small individuals, and that you know so small. Um, a little bit of a a little bit of an ugly way to think about things, but science is science. So small that the Marines had to really think hard about the caliber of ammunition. Is that a, a five five six round, which is your standard NATO round for an M sixteen? It's a two twenty three. It's a yeah. AR. It's it's what in consumer in the in the in the civilian hands is an AR fifteen assault weapon. Well, but two two three. So in other words, yeah, it's a twenty two. Right, so it's this teeny tiny little bullet, and the the reason why that round works is that it it bounces around and cavitates. Right, so right. it's such a high powered round, but it you know the the way that again because I went to the military medical school they they taught us these kinds of things like in class that 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 five five six round can go in your shoulder and come out your butt. Right, you know it's like so it's a teeny little round. But because it does all these, it's frangible and it does all these freaky things. Well, it turns out that it'll only do that if you're the size of an average Russian. It's like that that round was meant to win the Cold War. It's like it was literally designed to do a better job against armor and to do what it does when it happens to be being used against like 200-pound, six-foot-ish you know, kind of individuals. What we found out the hard way is that when you're fighting people, you know, in a place like the Alambar province and the guys you're fighting are probably 150 pounds tops, that round will actually go completely through them and make a pinhole and and injure them almost exactly zero. <laughs> Interesting. Because it's just small people. So that that's why it's like I had that whole interesting conversation because the you know we're we're talking to like the regimental gunner about this issue that we're having with like standard ammunition and it's like yeah they don't you know that out out in the sticks in Iraq three quarters of the population is half starved you know it's kind of a it's kind of a problem of inadequate food in the first place and then what food they get is not particularly nutritionally rich and then yep. I completely agree like your thoughts about vitamin D are a good one but it's yeah, it, it came up with a really, really interesting, almost ironic consequence, like what that meant tactically. That, that's that's really interesting because that must be a spectrum because the 223 actually works very good as a varmint caliber too, for like prairie dogs and squirrels. So mm -hmm. the really small stuff, it just blasts them. Exactly. Yeah, you put it, put that thing in the rightish place and it's it's very humane. <laughs> you're, yeah, you're you're just kind of going to obliterate your target. But yeah, put so it, it, yeah, the exact wrong sized human, and it's it's almost it's useless right unless there. unless you got him in the exact right place, right? Yeah, yeah, you don't have enough mass there to start the cavitation. Mm -hmm. It just it's it's in and out before it knows it's supposed to tumble around. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. 
Right, right. Well, we're getting we're getting off topic here, so let's kind of roll back into you know how the foundational metabolic health. I think we're on a good one with the vitamin D mm-hmm. as one aspect, but you know nutrition, exercise, stimulation, recovery, and then how that works for mental health. Uh, when you were talking about people and giving them acute medications, I was thinking, you know, when you have somebody like that you're ending up with this what what i you know what what we term as a downward cascade effect right where all of a sudden things are set in motion and it's just it's an accelerating train wreck it is and then you know the 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 thing that i wanted to to kind of make special note of today like as it as it kind of pertains to OFM and the and the training approach and the nutritional approach and then now my like my concerns about you know what what happens when i add esketamine onto that program i you know i really wanted to bring up that perspective that i'm going to say 90% of my patients have metabolic syndrome right so people people come to me they're severely depressed now the selection bias for me is that they're they're coming to me for transcranial magnetic stimulation or they're coming to me for esketamine both of which are fda approved for treatment resistant depression so my selection bias is all all of my patients are probably 30% or more severe you know, above and beyond what is maybe a typical psychiatrist practice when people are coming in for well, the truth of the matter is probably 80% plus of the population diagnosed with MDD never makes it out of their primary care doctor's office. So then the way more severe end up in front of a psychiatrist and then even more severe end up in front of me. But then, okay, so, you're, so you're 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 what you're saying is you're a big believer in the in in what you're doing with transcranial stimulation therapy, and when appropriate as ketamines. But ninety nine probably point five percent of the people that arrive at you have already been through the conventional route, which is which is going to destroy their metabolism as well. And they probably didn't start out with great metabolism to begin with. Well, depending on their age, too, right? Yeah. So that my so average average people that come to me for TMS are about fifty and change. That's been sort of a stable metric. That so the average person that comes to me is usually fifty or so. They've been suffering with depression for a minimum of two decades, maybe three. They've had an average of about eight-ish medication trials before they come to me. Right. That's what my point was. Time. Yeah. But that, if someone's 50 or 60 years old, they at least had the benefit of 70s nutrition when they were little. So they, so they the might have benefit? actually. Are you saying the benefit? Or are you joking? No, no, I'm saying the first decade of their life, they actually probably ate real food. Okay. <laughs> so they, they, ironically, they got that going for them, you know, that they, yeah. they probably had a fairly heavy diet meat. They, they probably didn't eat much earlier than nine o'clock in the morning and five o'clock at night. You know, so they, they were practicing what we now like to call intermittent fasting. Because in, in 1972, that was just called eating. Right? <laughs> you don't eat too late at night. You don't eat too early in the morning. But the younger my patients get, so if someone happens to come to me with, you know, who's 25 years old, and I'm, I'm really excited to treat them because they've probably had fewer medication trials because they haven't been seeing a doctor for more than, you know, four or five years. 
But I also have a very strong reason to believe that they were literally weaned onto Pop-Tarts and Mountain Dew. So they're a infinitely worse metabolic picture, maybe even. And no, no fat, and the, the whole uh, mantra of trying to rid yourself of as much fat as you can, and yeah, and replace and, it all with canola oil, right? You yeah. know, so we're we're all full of polyunsaturated fats. We're we're full of high fructose corn syrup. We don't even eat real sugar anymore. So that, but the to kind of bring it all together, going back to my thoughts about this like disin, disinhibited pathologically elevated glutamate on top of all the, the hyperinsulinemia and the inflammation, I'm not 100% convinced that some of these patients are in a position to tolerate psychiatric treatment, even my favorites, like transcranial magnetic stimulation, esketamine, until their metabolism is addressed. They're metabolically frail. Oh, yeah. They're so sick. Now, that... I'm, now that I'm worrying that you know ketamine might actually be harmful in that milieu, TMS. You know the the way that I characterize TMS is that you know it's kind of like I glued your brain to a treadmill. So that you know if TMS treats your depression, that's kind of an exercise model. If fixing your diet treats your depression, that's a nutritional model. Could could TMS be sort of there? This is oversimplifying. But could TMS be sort of like the brain equivalent of a pacemaker? Uh, no, I yes, but I but I I think I, like I said I'm more, oversimplifying, but but I think of it as more than that because it's because it really does constitute training of your brain. You know, so when I'm when I'm using TMS to stimulate the brain, and for the you know the the again the oversimplified version of what that is. Right. I'm electrically stimulating neurons, but right. I, but I can just I can use a magnetic field to do it, which is infinitely more polite than you know drilling holes and sticking wires in there. So so people really appreciate you know, the the magnetic part of the stimulation. But I stimulate you know for depression we stimulate the left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. That is the FDA cleared anatomic target since 2008. And nothing has really changed in 15 years. So we're we're stimulating LDL PFC and we stimulate those neurons enough to make them depolarize, right? That's key. Right. And you can do it at 10 hertz or 18 hertz, depending on device, depending on protocol, but you do it at what's considered a high frequency. And after a sufficient number of pulses at that, you know, supra polarization intensity and that frequency, that part of the brain will be more active for hours after that, right? So I can I can stimulate your brain with about 3,000 pulses. That'll take about 20-ish minutes. You won't feel a thing, by the way, right? There's, there's no sensation of electricity. I have multiple patients that are very disappointed by that fact. You know, they, they came to the office hoping for a show and there isn't one, you know, and I got, I got TV bolted to the wall so people don't get too bored, you know, while they're, getting their 20 minutes of stimulation. But you know the, the early studies with TMS show that the oxygen utilization is higher in that area of stimulation for up to hours after one treatment before it settles back down to baseline activity. But the important thing is that we do that every day, five days a week, to the tune of about 30 sessions. So that's why I, I kind of argue it's, it's training as opposed to pacemaking. 
the the added activation, you know, the antidepressant effect is attributed to that. But the more important thing is by the end of, you know, 3,000 pulses per treatment and 30 sessions of that, I've lit up that whole circuit, the frontoparietal network, 90,000 times. So it is exquisitely unlikely, or it's very, 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 very likely, sorry about the mix-up, that it's really growing that way. Right, that's how long-term potentiation works. So it, it, we should be literally making that circuit stronger, not just more active. And that's so it, why I think it's, it's, doing, it's actually doing both. It's setting the brain electron firing in the in in the right direction as a pacemaker would, but then it's training the brain to upregulate that. So it's not necessary. Um, right, you shouldn't need the pacing anymore, and the. Right. You know, one year follow up data, right? That that's to my knowledge that to this day, that's all that's been published was like one year follow up, but one acute treatment with TMS. So this like six ish weeks of treatment for about 30 treatments and in 250 and change subjects that got well, two thirds of them are still fine after a year. So that is, you know, that suggests exactly that, that. You can use that treatment. You can you can stimulate that circuit ninety thousand times, and the people that get better, those those benefits will tend to be retained, you know, for months and months and months and months, if not indefinitely. And then the the problem that you're in is that you know, at least fifty percent of the time, depression is recurrent. So you're going to have another episode, no matter what anybody does necessarily. And so people who do have a recurrence in depression you can't really prove that it's because TMS somehow wore off. It just means that they had another episode. Well, but, but this goes back to what you were just saying about the, the oxygen consumption. I mean, this is something key to optimize fat metabolism because, you know, one of the limiting factors for muscle ATP production is oxygen for fat, mm -hmm. oxidation, right? It takes twice the, twice the oxygen per ATP versus glycolytic pathways. Um, yes. right. So let's talk about this, this, and this is why one of the things we see is the reduction in inflammation, like getting the glucose down, getting the insulin down, mm -hmm. uh, getting the stomach and gut right. So you don't have all these foreign proteins having to charge up your immune system and create more inflammation that, you know, that has huge impacts like like that's a, a a foundational thing to what your what your intervention is trying to accomplish is get the oxygen consumption the metabolic pathways in the brain cells to work better because the brain now why don't you why don't you explain to me but my understanding is brain cells aren't really good at beta oxidation they're not super mitochondrial rich they work much better on ketones and glucose than free fatty acids, yet, yet brain cells are lipid rich structures. Right. Well, that they're, they're built, right. That some, some people, when they're purposely trying to be provocative, basically say your, your brain is made of fat and cholesterol. And so, so eat your, eat your eggs because your, your brain is made of fat and cholesterol. And, and you need the choline, which we'll talk about. Yes. But so highly, yeah, highly, highly, highly important to the structure, but absolutely that the, and 
actually my understanding is the the fatty acids don't really cross the blood brain barrier like the so the the neurons don't really have a way of getting access to just straight up you know fatty acid to use for fuel but they can get glucose and they can get ketones and then you know, I've, I've read some papers where it is suggested because you know what we what we don't know pales into what compared you know we what we know pales in comparison to what we don't know but i have mm -hmm. some read some papers where it suggested beta oxidation beta ox, ox does occur in brain cells but not very well yeah just not like not well and not to any great degree right right right, right. just like anything with your brain and nervous system mm -hmm. it's it's you know it's just because and plus you know blood flow is a is another critical issue is you know because the brain is such an energy out externally energy thirsty organ well an energy thirsty and then the, so there's, there's a certain percentage of like energetic activity in the brain that is mandatory glucose Right. So you yes. can never you can never get the you can never get glucose utilization in the brain to zero. But that, you know, there are people are well, not not a lot of my colleagues apparently have read this, but some folks are starting to finally figure out that glucose and ketones is an ideal fuel mixture for the brain. I've said this for years. It's you know, they say a lot of people are talking about ketones as an alternative source. I think it's not only alternative, but it's probably the preferred source. Agree. Like the preferred source in terms of like cleanliness, right? It's like that. Clean well, cleanliness, but the, but the, but the, what going back to what you're talking about, the oxygen stimulation, you have to have the oxygen to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that, you know, now that, now that I live out on a farm, I'm, I'm always thinking about fuel mixture right that's the so that's kind of the way that i like to think about that now too like my chainsaw you know uses it uses some gas but it uses some oil and oxygen and the mixture needs to be right you know in order for that engine to run ideally right it never the engine never wants any one of those things it wants the right mixture and you don't want it to be too rich you don't want it to be too lean it's got to be just right so that i can get my work done now we're talking about chainsaws. Well, I mean, you know, brains, chainsaws, what's the difference? Well, but, uh, I'm going to go off topic here, but it reminds me of a one of those little New Yorker cartoons, those little black and white sketches in New Yorker that I saw like three or four decades ago. Yeah. And it was like a, a you know, a cocktail party and, it, you know, it was on a patio and stuff and says, yeah, the men are outside talking about chainsaws and the women are inside talking about orgasms. And what's the difference? <laughs> but, Priority. Uh, you bring up a point that I know we we really wanted to get to today because it, it was you know kind of the purpose of having this conversation. the The metabolic need of the brain is so high, and this is this is something that like TMS has made me think about a lot more. When the you know the, the two the two big areas where metabolic health is fitting into mental health have to do with the insulin resistance slash hyperinsulinemia as well as the actual literal health of the mitochondria right and that right. you know that that's all there in dr palmer's latest book and his lectures and a few other people have talked about that 
But this notion that, like, number one, if you're if you're insulin resistant, hyperinsulinemic, your brain just can't get fuel, and that's what the that's what the whole type three diabetes thing is about, right? That where right, and it also sets up before before it manifests itself as type three diabetes. If the brain can't get fuel, it's it's going to sense fight or flight. Well, it's going to sense fight or flight, and it's going to it's going to actually shut things down. That, that's that's you're dead on because stay alive. Uh, right. And like, this is this is in alignment with Dr. Navial's another French name I can't pronounce. Dr. Navial out of UC San Diego. Uh, he's got this hypothesis called the cell danger response. And that's exactly the first step is turn the metabolism down, go into protective protective modality. And and of course that would start with the brain cells. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it absolutely starts with the brain cells. And and here's what's interesting about that. And it's it's another one that I kind of I obviously I'm a weirdo because I can't get my colleagues to be interested in this. They, you know, they this is one of those ones where everybody starts looking at me like I just threw up on myself. But well, that's why you're talking to me because we're both curious and we'll 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 have these conversations. That's why I treasure your friendship, you know, because you don't get that weird look on your face. About a third maybe a quarter of all of my TMS patients over the years complain of being extremely tired after a treatment. And by after a treatment, I mean they get one 3,000 pulse treatment and they get up out of that chair and feel, you know, tired, groggy. I've even heard of, this never happened in my patients in clinic, but I've heard of people actually getting up out of the chair slurring. Like they're actually a little and kind of goofy and and you know need a minute to kind of get over it before they feel they can walk out. And then yeah, you know, I got interested in that. Every guy that every TMS jock in the country knows this is a thing. You know, I I ask around at the TMS Society, and everyone kind of says, yeah, maybe about a quarter to a third of patients they'll tell you they feel really tired afterwards. Everybody else, they get up out of the chair, they 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 profess to feel literally the same as they did when they sat down. And when the treatment's working, the benefits manifest maybe around three-ish weeks, you know, it's going to be typical. But the subset of people, they feel dramatically tired and maybe even a little bit impaired post-treatment. And then one day I got really curious because I was in the room with someone who was telling me about it, you know, in the moment. And so I was asking him, you know, do you, you feel like you can't drive? And he said, no can drive it's like do you feel like you need a nap and he said not really like that that's not what i mean by tired and it finally hit me i said do you feel like you read the bible in 20 minutes and he's like that's it <laughs> like has that tired brain like i studied too hard and i literally feel like i wiped out my brain and he's like, I, I just feel like I need to watch cartoons for a couple hours. Like my, I just worked my brain too hard and I need some rest. So I started thinking about that and I thought, well, you know, the, the brain uses 20% or more of the total energetic resources. And I'm told this guy, I'm like, I made your brain fire 3000 times in 20 minutes. Like that is hard work and that's not metabolically free. And it actually surprises me that more people don't feel tired. Like that, what's strange to me is that everybody doesn't feel tired after a TMS treatment. Like why is it only a quarter of people? And that has gotten me wondering for the last few years, what if 
someone who is, let's say, minimally metabolic healthy, since almost nobody is metabolically healthy, but let's let's say that if they at least have enough metabolic health, that when I am working their brain as hard as I'm working it, they can actually get the extra fuel that the brain is asking for. And so by the end of the treatment, they feel okay, but a subset of them are actually so insulin resistant, so zeroed out on ketones, so hurting for energy that I'm like, I'm wondering if I'm hammering on the gas pedal when there's a kink in the fuel line. There's a big kink because it's not just, it's not just that they're not producing ketones. They're also not, they don't have gluconeogenesis going. Exactly. Like they can't get, they can't get glucose in there. They can't get ketones in there and I'm revving the engine and they can't get fuel. And then yeah. it leaves them, you know, with well, this and, 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 this, and, and this is one of the things it's like, I look at glucose as our fight or flight mm-hmm. or our, or a bridge fuel. So whenever there's a change in energetics, glucose is the thing that can just jump in there and fill that need. Yep. Okay. And, and we saw that in our data collection when, when we had people on the treadmill and these were fat adapted athletes, every time there was a change in the pace to increase the pace, there was this little slight blip initially of glucose and then it settled back down, you know, and then a little bit bigger both settled back down until you got to the, the threshold. Well, they, they even went to their threshold, but when, once you went into anaerobic, that's when you saw the glucose start to really go up. Yeah. Uh, so it's a bridge fuel and what people don't realize is, is with insulin. Um, I've said this before. I'll say this again. The modern perspective of insulin is we're, we're, we're looking at this completely wrong, right? Mm -hmm. We're using insulin, whether we're, we're type two diabetics or type one diabetics or people who have too much carbohydrate in their diet for their particular set of variables. Uh, We're using insulin as a blunt sledgehammer to drive blood sugar down. Right. Right. It's and it when it when in the context of what insulin should be evolutionarily, insulin is like the third most anabolic hormone there is after HGH and testosterone, mm-hmm. right? Low low insulin, high insulin sensitivity, low fasting insulin, high ins, uh, sensitivity. Insulin is one of the the most uh, anabolic hormones, mm-hmm. right? That's what a that's what a carb refeed does if you're metabolically fit, right? Right. That's what IGF in milk, you know, that's why young animals grow big is mm-hmm. milk provides that growth factor that, you know, they haven't matured sexually to where they're producing the testosterone. So, so, you know, it's like with a lot of things that they, they have huge benefits if they're used in the right context, but we're, we're using insulin completely wrong. And I think your, your concept is completely valid because like I say, they don't use that fasting insulin is not part of a standard panel. And and you might have great blood sugar control, but your insulin's through the roof and, and boom, to a point you, you give your brain a test and all of a sudden it's starting. Yeah, they, can't, they can't do it. And that what, what's really interesting is I find most of those patients that have that phenomenon, it tends to resolve in about three, four weeks. So that there might even be kind of a getting in shape phenomenon that they like with TMS alone, they seem to get better at solving that energy problem. 
Well, sure, because TMS is taking them off of that fight or flight response, the danger, cell danger. So the cortisol is going to go down. I mean, there's just, I'm thinking about several metabolic pathways that are going to just settle down because when, by the time a person gets to you for a TMS treatment, they're pretty foobar. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Right? But then that, that's kind of my, my existential question now is what, what would happen if I had the opportunity to solve their metabolism first? I got, I got a, I got a good start. Yeah. So I'm told, <laughs> but that's, well, the, so well, I let's, all let's, let's do this. Let's do this. I'll send you a case of Vespa and have them take it 45 minutes before their treatment. Interesting. Very, it's not a dietary good. supplement. You might yeah, find no, you're right. That's a, like medically speaking, that's a really easy intervention because it's not, you know, we're not going to run into Nuremberg laws or anything like yeah, that. It's classified as a food by the FDA. Yeah. So it's so it's either going to help or do nothing, but there really isn't a lot of yeah, there's no downside. Well, yeah, there's no downside. And it's it's sort of like what you're describing with TMS. We have to tell athletes what you're going to notice is what you don't notice. Mm -hmm. because you don't have the ups and downs in energy. You don't have the GI issues. You recover faster and you feel like you just had a good day. Mm -hmm. Right. Cause it's working with your metabolism. So you don't have that rush. Like when you take a gel, when your blood sugar is low or you take some caffeine or some other God knows what stimulant, right. Mm -hmm. But you don't have to crash either when you don't afterwards, it just kind of keeps your rock steady. Um, so that, well, that's a perfect segue into the other thing I really wanted to get into because I, I think of like, I think of optimized fat metabolism as a, as athletes, right. And it's, right. and, you know, getting, getting, getting from good to great, getting, you know, getting to what is optimized as opposed to what most people think, you know, is maybe healthy and isn't really healthy, but what, how do I best think of that? in like my patients that are so severely ill. And I, I also wonder, is there a difference between the acute intervention, you know, versus the maintenance intervention when I, when I have someone like that who's so sick to begin with? I think, you know, let's put it this way. And this is a good way to frame it with your patients. Mm -hmm. Okay. Cause you know, you saw, you witnessed firsthand what this did for Meg's performance, right? Yeah. Yeah, she broke all her records. I know, and she just kept going till till she she was said, "Okay, I've done that. I'm going to move on to other things." But but that lifestyle has continued, mm -hmm. right? It's 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 self reinforcing. Now, with your people, the way to frame it is, okay, this is used by a lot of ultra endurance athletes because they and we're seeing that they don't break down. But whether anybody realizes it or not we're all entered for that ultra endurance event called life. True. True. Right. And it's like, how do you want, you know, if you're, if somebody's coming to see you, they want to get better. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you have a, a, a tool and an intervention to get them out of the hole, but they need to work on those foundational things, which is the metabolic health side of things. Yeah. And then that, you know, the segue from that into kind of what we were chit-chatting about before you hit the record button, this is really hard to quantify, but when we can get 
get these people well metabolically, I think oftentimes the next thing that happens is they start having ideas about, you know, what they want to do with their life. That, yeah, no, it's like, and like we we're talking. Yeah, exactly. Is is all of a sudden the priority shifts of of this focus on a, an acute situation that's got them frozen to seeing, like you say, the neuroplasticity opens up, and you can start to dream, imagine, and be curious. Yeah, stop living in fear. Yes, right? that, that's a I mean, that's been a very interesting phenomenon that I don't know how to study, but I. I just don't believe it's possible to take a quarter of a red pill that like, that's the way I've been thinking about this notion that, you know, my, my life is different, you know, in, in ways that people might not have expected. I felt pretty good and happy before. So it's not, it's not like a massive paradigm change for me, but people fix their, people fix their nutrition. They fix their metabolism. And I think the more common phenomenon is that you see many other seemingly unrelated things changing in terms of, you know, priorities, what people think and how they feel about what matters and what doesn't. But my explanation of that for the last few years is that it's like, well, because a red pill is a red pill, you got to take the whole pill. <laughs> so once you, once you have your red pill about what constitutes good food and, and a metabolism that works right. It's like, well, the veil's been ripped from your eyes, man. You're you're going to see everything else for what it is too. There, there's just kind of no way around that. Right. And and like I've seen, the people who commit 100%, they get we get 100% results. Mm -hmm. right? It's because it's it's problem solving. The people who have one foot in, one foot out, and they're kind of holding on to that old paradigm. It's it it, it we can it. Sometimes we're lucky and they start to experience it and then they they pull that other foot out of that old paradigm. But sometimes that, you know, like you say, taking part of the pill creates its own conundrum that prevents you from experiencing, you know, because, you know, the mind's a very powerful thing. If it wants to believe this isn't working, it will. Correct. Right. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So it's an interesting conundrum, but, but like you say, you got to get them, you got to get them on that path. And, and to a point, I think it's important for us to establish and you can corroborate this, but the problem I see is like you and Meg living your life, the, 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 the athletes I'm working with, this is what normal healthy should be, except that we're considered outliers, freaks. Like you're considered, like you say, your your way of thinking with within your own community of psychiatrists is an outlier. Yeah, exactly. And so we've we've dumbed down. The, we're we're addicts to convenience, and so, but the but the irony of that is what got us to that convenience was our brains. And our brain's ability to use it and problem solve and, and meet challenges, mm -hmm. right? But yet, yet the convenience is is making us lazy mentally, um, and that you know, of course, that mental laziness also leads to metabolic laziness. And so, what we see here is like, like I said, we're we're dealing with what people think is healthy is actually a sick state evolutionarily. Mm -hmm. um, 
it's like Dr. Naviel in his latest correspondence with me says, it's like the Serengeti. If, if you're not moving, you're dead. Exactly. Right? exactly. Right? We were talking about how a sedentary lifestyle <laughs> signals senescence to the cells. Yes. Well, and that was the analogy you used. If you're if you're not moving, you know you're not signaling that adaptive response to continually get stronger, fitter, robust. You know you're on a, you're on that downslope, that 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 sliding downslope where your cells get weaker and weaker. And this is where, you know, the whole thing with building metabolic capacity is so so crucial, right? Well, it's so crucial, and it. It's such an important part of life that so that that's another really that's a nice example of something that I'm still struggling to get across to a lot of my patients when when we start talking about exercise. You know, it's like I, I think all of them need to be all of my patients need to be about 99 percent focused on nutrition before they can really even think very hard about exercise because they're I, they're too sick for that. Like we're not we're not ready to start doing that. But then what's missing from their lives, you know, I think I've told you this before. Never, ever, ever in my life have I, do I believe I've experienced what people call runner's high. Like, I don't, I don't know what the heck they mean by endorphins. I don't, you know, I'm a rower. And as far as I know, the discomfort just goes up until I die. You know, <laughs> like there is no, there is no like breakthrough where I suddenly feel like I, like I got a massive rush of, you know, some kind of endogenous opiate. But what does happen to me when things are going perfectly, and I, I had a really, really, really wonderful time with my beloved kettlebell about two days ago and had this experience. When everything is moving, as you pointed to, and all systems are go, and obviously, you know, my metabolism is working well or or things wouldn't be going so well and I'm strong on the bell and everything is perfect and I really start to believe that every cell in my body is starting to sing. And and I actually caught myself laughing a little bit. Like that that ends up being the the result of that. Like not a not a high, not an opiate euphoria, but just this like this absolute feeling that I'm doing what I'm meant to do. And, it right, and you got, you got all your cells all aligned to work synergistically with each other. And the like, symphony is perfect. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's like I say, you know, think of your body as a symphony orchestra and you're the conductor and you don't actually play those things your cells do, but you can do little things to get everything aligned to where it makes beautiful music or in the case of most people out there, you know, the music's not quite right, right? There's there's some tweaking to do. Right. But to validate, you know, the point about the Serengeti, that's what being alive is. Yep. Right. So it's not like, right. If you're not moving, you're dying because living is the symphony. Like that's the, and it's not happiness, it's joy. Right. Yeah. Good. Well, and this is this is what what you're describing to me because, like, I run. I think running sucks. <laughs> I mean, especially. But if I get myself out on a trail, and once I hit that switch, which is what we're talking about, that switch where all of a sudden your internal pathways are all upregulated, your cardiovascular is fully dilated. It's like, yeah, 
whether I'm running 20 miles in the mountains or you're swinging a big 40 kilogram bell, mm -hmm. like I can do this. I want to do this. And it's like I say, like in the case of a kettlebell, when the difficulty of the workout pushes against you, you want to push back hard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it's fun. Yeah, it's okay. fun. And that's, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm. It's I'm also toxic doing... masculinity. I'm warning you. So toxic. I'm just, <laughs> I'm waiting for a, a really good shipping deal so that I can get myself a 44 kilo bell. <laughs> right. I just, unfortunately, those things are so freaking heavy that the shipping costs more than the bell. Yeah. But, but there's the thing. It's like, it's like you're in, you're now entrained into, oh God, can I lift more? It's like, no, I want to lift more. Mm -hmm. You know, you're making those, like we were talking earlier, those decisions are just now you've got this upward cascade where you're moving, everything's moving mentally, physically in the direction of, of constant improvement. Precisely. So that's, yeah. that's the key to mental health. We solved it. <laughs> yeah, we can solve everything, right? <laughs> yep. So let's talk a little bit about dementia and type what what's you know in, in a lot of research circles it's being called type 3 diabetes mm -hmm. although that's a, that's not a that's a non-technical non-validated term but it's kind of like what a lot of researchers are now thinking of of alzheimer's dementia and one of the reasons i want to talk about it was you know what a day or two ago sandra day o'connor passed away mm -hmm. of dementia and her husband also, when she retired from the bench, it was because her husband had started into that thing. And he also passed away several years ago, I think well, more than a decade ago of, of Alzheimer's. Right. And, and I see this a lot just, you know, like I say, I'm not a scientist. I'm not, there's no study, but I see this a lot in couples. And so my thinking is, okay, this can't be a genetic thing. It has right. to be a cultural lifestyle thing because we've got two separate different sets of genes here mm -hmm. and you know my thinking is that that people in who are you know currently in their 70s 80s 90s who are experiencing these things they were all they all flat landed in that 1982 american dietary guidelines which told everybody to go High carb, low fat, eliminated fats. We we need to talk about choline, mm -hmm. um, you know, and all that. So, take it away. Well, I think number one, you apparently my medical school was weird because we I was taught to think the way that you just outlined, starting from my first year of medical school, and and so I thought that all doctors are taught to think that way, and and it's looking more and more like apparently not. But that, like, you hit the nail right on the head. If I have two um, ideally genetically unrelated people <laughs> who are married to each other, and then they and then they both have literally the same illness, like, well, I start looking around their house for a toxic exposure, right? Like that would be. It's like, well, they they both caught the same thing, or they both they're both eating the same, and that, you know. I'll, to up the ante just a little bit, just as a kind of funny aside that validates that even more, it's now I'm finally reading more about dogs having the same metabolic problems as their humans. And it's like, well, it's because everybody in the house eats about the same. 
It's like the the humans eat like crap, the dogs eat like crap. And the humans eat six times a day, the dogs eat ten times a day. Like they're well, actually it's actually more pronounced in felines and canines, but people aren't making that connection to humans. I mean, canine right. feline diabetes is rampant. Um nation, uh, because they're on these, you know, most cats and dogs are eating kibble, right? Mm -hmm. Which is high in carbohydrate for people who are you know, animals that are further on the predator spectrum than we are, right? Digestively, mm -hmm. we're we're closer to a dog than a pig. Uh, pigs and bears are what I consider true omnivores. We're omnivorous carnivores, right? And then and then dogs are a little bit, and then canine or felines are are obligate Smoother, carnivores, yeah. right? But between the amount of sugar, they're not evolution. Their digestive tract is evolutionarily even worse, plus the fact that that stuff breeds a lot of periodontal health because they don't mm -hmm. brush their teeth. They get that systemic inflammation, which drives the diabetes, which drives the heart disease. You're you're dead on, which drives the cataracts and all this stuff. And it's like, yeah. so so take it from there. I mean, yeah, the 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 pet thing is 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 it's almost the the symptoms of what's going on are right there with our pets as well as us. Well, and going back to dementia, then it, it, when you think about it that way, it doesn't make sense to characterize dementia as some sort of genetic reason why amyloid protein is accumulating in the brain and the, and the solution is to invent some kind of crazy ass $60,000 infusion to rip the amyloid out of the brain. And that's like that. So that, you, you know, that drug got FDA approved. Yes. It literally didn't work like the, And it was in the same paragraph. It's like you, you read the news release and you're like Agihelm. It's this and this and this study. And none of the patients got better. Blah, blah, blah. FDA approved. And you're like, what the hell? Like, well, they, they said it worked because it did what it was supposed to do. It took the amyloid protein out of the brain. And yet, but then the dementia isn't better. And now I think that it's just, it's just the cholesterol bullshit all over again. Sorry for my language, but that it, it is kind of that same logic again, for which I would have been hazed in medical school if I ever said something so childish as to say, well, these demented brains have amyloid protein so take out the amyloid protein and cure dementia it's like that i wouldn't have made it past my second year of medical school like that we were literally taught over and over and over again that that is not how science works you know that you can't like you can't you can't put somebody in a suit and shove them in a house and then be like congratulations you're middle class like that that's not how that works right, you know, that, right. it's like they have the suit and the house because they're middle class you know, it's like you're you're looking at things completely backwards. So right then and there, it's like this years and years that the entire pharmaceutical industry is obsessed with the amyloid proteins and how to get them out of there. And I think like how how could they have ever thought that that was actually the pathology that we were going after? Now, you know, finally where we are, Again, to your point, it's like the the logic would be that it's more of a toxic exposure, and either a literal poison in the environment, 
like you got black mold or some crap, so everybody in the house got the same illness, or the toxic exposure being high fructose corn syrup and polyunsaturated fatty acids and some severe deficiencies because you really can't get you know choline if you don't eat eggs. So we're we're gonna have like growing problems, you know, with this cognitive impairment. Now the fly in the ointment is that there's more than one kind of dementia. So we can have vascular dementia, frontotemporal dementia, Lewy body dementia, and they're not all going to be the same thing. But it is extremely exciting that like even, I mean, there was a Japanese paper a couple of years ago that infusing ketones IV and their dementia patients got considerably better within 24 hours. So that... Like that was a really, really interesting piece of information that if you could just get some energy into that brain, the lights come on right in front of you. It was like, it was my favorite kind of study because they did it with clock drawing. So you could see like we had patient, you know, patient number four try to draw a clock on Tuesday and it's unintelligible. And then they infused beta hydroxybutyrate, just a literal venous infusion. And on Wednesday, this poor guy can actually draw a clock. Like it was, it was that dramatic with like maybe 30 people. So well, that's, and let me just interject because there was something earlier when we were talking about ketones and glucose being interchangeable fuels and, and that possibly ketones are the preferred fuel mm-hmm. for basal brain and nervous system function. And I don't know if you're aware of this, but there was a, an experiment done and it was a very, it wasn't like something that was published. And this was well before IRBs were invented. You couldn't get an IRB, but they right. took, I can't remember who it was, but they took a bunch, a couple, like four people. They, they infused them with insulin, but at the same time they were giving them ketones. Mm-hmm. And they took their blood sugar down to 28. Yeah. And they had no, these patients had no, they, they were sedentary, but they mm-hmm. had no idea that they were, their blood sugar was 28. They never felt like they were hypoglycemic yeah. or anything like that. Right. And, they tolerate it beautifully. Right. And, and, and they weren't, they weren't in ketoacidosis, mm-hmm. right? Because all of a sudden that those ketones were not, were not, it wasn't oversupply. It was being consumed by brain cells. Mm-hmm. Right. And the interesting thing, the, the side note to that is uh, there was this there's this big article that came out uh, that Dr. Linda just sent me today. There's a gal. Uh, it, it hit all the news, but a, an Australian elite marathoner went blind during the last couple of kilometers of her marathon here this last weekend at, at, at the Valencia Marathon. It was one of the fast ones. And it's mm-hmm. all over the thing. If you look it up, the, the headlines are all dramatic and fear based. And it's like she had this huge hypoglycemic effect event right during the last part. And, and I'm like, you know, and Dr. Linda said, this woman needs, this woman needs OFM, right? Right. People are making big headlines about this, but this is exactly the kind of um, cognitive dis- disconnect that, that people don't get like it's all the headlines but like they're still pushing the carbs like crazy like like i'm sure the 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 solution is she just needs some more gels yeah more gels more gels more gels well that 
it's that that all kind of ties into the one thing when you're talking about dementia when you're talking about these hypoglycemic episodes and then you know yesterday i was actually early this morning i was you know following a thread on social media about the the hysteria of people having heat injuries in 90 degree weather and i'm thinking you know like people at concerts and not not even athletic events but just big big outdoor events and it's 90 degrees it's 95 degrees and it's some record number of people that got hauled away in ambulances you know because they're pale and diaphoretic and they feel like crap and the and the fake news wants to act like it's climate change yeah like first of all oh god oh god we're gonna blame blame it on climate change and you're like first of all 90 degrees isn't that hot but then you know second of all like humans can tolerate heat i mean that like one of the things that makes humans special is our ability to tolerate heat and and even tolerate heat with insufficient hydration and humans still do wonderfully so it's like can can a human being tolerate 90 degree weather even if they're not drinking water absolutely but can a hyperinsulinemic severely depleted halfway to heart failure probably halfway to hyponatremia human tolerate 90 degree weather no no they can't after they've had a couple of beers precisely it's like well (laughs) and don't get me started about the alcohol thing it's like can it alcohol has i don't know why well i i kind of think i do know why but it's a little bit too tinfoil hat for this conversation all of the massive propaganda some of it coming out of doctors i really really respect about the latest thing that no amount of alcohol is safe that you know the only correct amount of alcohol is zero alcohol and number one all right that that is absurd on its face it can't be true every single human society on the planet has independently discovered alcohol all humans consume alcohol. Humans have been consuming alcohol for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years. If alcohol was literally only negative to humans, evolution would have wiped it out millennia ago. I've got the answers for this. Already thought this through. So here we go. Well, the, my point being, just before we get to your very good answers, is that it isn't about no amount of alcohol is safe it's that alcohol is not safe for a metabolically sick human. That's correct. Bingo. That's not being made. <laughs> it's, it's just like, it's just like what I was talking about with how we're using insulin wrong. wrong. Mm-hmm. Context matters. And you just hit the, the nail on the head because I got curious about this because you hear the two things, alcohol and fructose, mm-hmm. toxic, toxic, toxic. Yeah, evil, toxic, heresy. Right, right, right. everything. So we're going to get our tinfoil hats on. So thinking about this from an evolutionary biology context, okay, humans, we're meant to to consume carbohydrate-rich things, but we're not meant to do it all the time. So we have adapted to having those pathways because that was no-risk food. Right. You didn't have to go, you know, try to kill bisons or mammoths or elk or something that could defend itself. Right. Right. So 
we had concentrated carbohydrates three to five times a year, not three mm -hmm. to five times a day for decades, which is what we're doing now. So we have this robust system, right? And and when that fruit was ripe or berries are ripe or tubers are ripe or we found honey, that was a, a very brief window, right? Mm -hmm. And well, so- And a little bit at a time too, right? Like- Well, well yeah, we have, but we gorged on it as much as we do, but typically, and, and when you look at in that evolutionary context, it was perfect because all of a sudden no risk food, we could gorge ourselves on it. When you eat carbs, you get full, you pass out, you wake up, you feel bloated, sick and shit, but guess what? You're hungry again. Mm -hmm. you just, I mean, it's just, it's just a beautiful, mechanism for thriving as a species well especially right? when you're trying to put on a few pounds right before winter right when that food is available well of course what happens to fruit if it after it sits for a few days it starts to ferment right right and i'm sure that's how we discovered alcohol and, and with our big human brains from eating meat we figured if we add a little bit of water and let it sit and cook guess what we have this more energy source that i actually made most of us pretty happy for mm -hmm. a short period of time. So yeah, it's, how, it's how we know our creator loves us. Right. So <laughs> we have, that right, right. So we have fruit with, you know, we have fruit and fructose, sugar and fructose based stuff, and we have alcohol. And, and when you look at the pathways of how both are metabolized in the liver, they're mm -hmm. remarkably similar. Mm -hmm. and, and in a metabolically fit person, it gets converted into fatty acids in the liver. And guess what? It's the first, first, fuel source your your liver is going to grab and make into free fatty acids ketones or glucose depending on the metabolic need right and, super, and so easy it's right there it's it's easy right there and it's because the insulin's low it's not blocking the liver from making these energy substrates mm -hmm. right so evolutionarily fit metabolically fit person everything's working the way it is and, and what got me really thinking about this was that evolutionary pressure that shaped us so we adapted to having pathways that actually turned alcohol and fructose into beneficial things if we're in 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 the in the context of the pressures that shaped us exactly right it's the environment stupid. instead of it's the economy stupid it's the environment stupid we've we've so messed up our environment that now this is toxic because what got me really thinking was i remember i was at a bicycle camp and somebody mentioned this and I'd heard it other times how they tied one on and the night before and then had the race of their life the next day. And I'm like, mm -hmm. young fit males can do this. Mm -hmm. right? Cause testosterone, high testosterone will cover up a, a number of sins. Right. Right. And they, they talk about how they got drunk off their ass and the next day they just had the ride of their life. And I'm like the miracle that it works as well as it does. <laughs> Right. But when you think about the context we're in, where once again, we go to that fasting insulin being high and it's pretty well established. If your fasting insulin is high, it, it turns down your liver's ability to release energy because it's trying to scavenge and get rid of all the excess glucose in circulation. Well, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's why like my big pet peeve now is the, the GLP one agonist, right? And this, this was also, a uh, it's something I already knew, but a but a bit of a lecture I was listening to last night, like really just characterized it further. Like when you take a drug like that, that it sure it it artificially gives you the satiety, right? And it gives people so much satiety 
that if they eat more than a few bites, they feel like they're going to barf. So then what does that drug really do? It's like people are, people are consuming maybe 800 calories a day and feeling like they can't eat anymore, you know, when they're taking semaglutide or, or one of the other GLP-1 agonists, but it is actually driving them to eat small amounts every hour and a half. So it is guaranteeing that they will be severely deficient in energy while maintaining a high insulin state. Right. And, and then all of a sudden you've got that delicate dance of insulin, ghrelin, and leptin. Because yeah. that's, that's the thing about snacking is it just totally upsets that balance to where you overeat or you overconsume. But And the other thing, I don't know, have you seen the papers that are starting to come out about the depression anxiety caused by the the these uh, – Weight Just, loss. Uh, uh, I've I've seen the the beginnings of it, and I've not I've not quite heard the proposed mechanism. But yeah, that, yeah, I, but but it's it's being observed. I guess it's it's in the observational state that people are are having these severe mental health challenges on these drugs. Well, and I don't I don't totally know why yet, because um, there are actually some things I don't know. But the you know, there's also a lot of interest that people that were taking GLP one agonists spontaneously stop drinking but then which is like well that's exciting you know of course all anybody wants to talk about is oh my god is you know semaglutide could be a alcohol use disorder medication so we can so we can patent it for that and give it a new brand name right and it's like that's all super exciting but i'm the i'm the weirdo saying well this this tells me that a glp1 agonist jacks with your reward system yep and then it's like well i'm not 100% 100% convinced that's a good thing <laughs> and that and we already know this like and I'm, I'm connecting things that probably don't belong together but when you use you you familiar with using naltrexone to to treat alcohol use disorder low dose naltrexone uh, actually just regular dose naltrexone okay okay you use and the the way we use it in the United States is actually scientifically all wrong it's like we give because uh, now trixone blocks the opiate receptor, and if okay. you give somebody and if you give somebody a full dose, it blocks all the opiate receptors. Like so, endogenous opiates aren't really getting through. Any opiate you put in your mouth isn't really getting through. Like it, it just basically stops it all from working. And in the United States, we're kind of so obsessed with abstinence from alcohol. Going back to our other point that we make patients get sober and then give them naltrexone to stop the cravings, which like, if that works, it probably works because every time they get a whiff of alcohol, it actually sets off the reward system as an anticipatory thing. And naltrexone blocks that. So they, so they feel like they're not getting the cravings, but the way that naltrexone's actually been really successful and controversial in the United States is called the Sinclair method. And it was based on the, the famous Helsinki data where people that were consuming 10 alcoholic drinks a day, right? So like alcohol use disorder, they told them to basically don't try to stop drinking in particular, but just take your full dose of naltrexone right before you drink. So it's like, whenever you're going to drink, take your naltrexone. And then if you don't drink, don't take any naltrexone. But if you are going to drink, have some naltrexone like 
30 minutes before you have that first drink. And with that particular protocol, 10 drinks a day, people spontaneously settle down to about two drinks a day. And 10% of the subjects actually stopped drinking entirely, like completely lost interest in it. And the, the hypothesis being that the opiate system is part of the reward system. And when naltrexone blocks the reward system, but you drink anyway, you don't get the reward out of it. And therefore the behavior you're training, you're training that person. Well, the behavior extinguishes because right. they're not getting anything out of it. Right. So they don't want to do it anymore. But the reason why you don't have people just take naltrexone every day is because not only will they stop drinking, they will also stop having sex and they will stop eating delicious food and just about anything else that is rewarding behavior will actually start to go away. They'll become catatonic. But we call that anhedonia, which is one of the cardinal symptoms of depression. So going back to like, if GLP-1 agonists are jacking with a reward system, I like, I can't help but wonder if then a, a certain percentage of people are actually starting to present with depression because, yeah, well, yeah. because they have severe anhedonia because nothing's enjoyable. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's what I see. And it's kind of interesting you say all this because, you know, I'm not a scientist. You know, I have my BS in biology, but I'm not a, I, I have friends, friends and my former wife are all doing, you know, did basic research mm-hmm. and published papers. And, you know, I've worked with some top researchers like Steve Finney and Jeff Bollock. So I know what good science is. I don't do it. I'm an empiricist. Right. Do what do what works, but study the science. I mean, the papers are great tools and guidelines. Studying the extremes, what works for our athletes as well as the highly diseased state, those are mm-hmm. great tools. But um, one of the one of the things I, I wanted to point out that you that's critical to our conversation on mental health is is what you were saying about this health Helsinki study is that. One of our principles in OFM in terms of actual execution is we don't deny long-term anything. If somebody likes chocolate cake, if they, if they like their bread or their pasta or their pizza, mm-hmm. whatever, whatever quote-unquote sin or toxic stuff, alcohol, I, don't, I tell people right up front, we, I'm not going to deny you anything. We just need to get you reset. So it might take a month or so of some discipline. Mm-hmm. But you know, what we found is like what that suggests to me is like a lot of times what I've had people do who are like, you know, into their breads and their pizzas and their pastas is once we get them, once we get them converted over in two or three months, I say, yeah, go have beer and pizza with your friends. And boy, they come back every time they come back complaining about the inflammation, the constipation, the achy joint, You know, and and even with myself, like I've got little kids, so there's pizza two or three times a year in my diet. Mm-hmm. And it's like an out-of-body experience. I'm just watching myself shove slice after slice in. And it's good while I'm doing it for some mm-hmm. reason, like rewards thing. But then 45 minutes to an hour later, it's like, oh, why did I do that? Yeah, then the and then consequences. It, and then it corrects the behavior. So that would, that would be like the... Uh, the antabuse model of treating alcohol use disorder. You remember that, that medicine? No. That's uh, antabuse is disulfiram. And this comes from like, this is before I was in medical school. This is really the old way, but it's, uh, it blocks 
it blocks the metabolic pathway of alcohol so that if you take this drug, alcohol, any alcohol you consume is immediately just turned into form basically formaldehyde. Oh, God. So you just get sick as all hell. And that was like in the 50s, I would say, is I think I'm getting it about right. The 50s and 60s would have been the peak of disulfiram, brand named Antabuse. And it works. Like some someone who wants to get sober and they don't seem to be able to do it, you know, no matter how many meetings they go to, they know that if they take that pill in the morning, then, you know, one not even one whole drink will just be a full on actually date so sick. It's a little bit dangerous to get, you know, to drink on top of disulfiram. And then the, and the interesting question there is that how many people just stop taking the pill and how many people, I mean, I, I actually had a patient back when I was a resident. So this, this was like, we're, I'm treating this guy in the early two thousands and he's on antabuse and I'm like the the fifties called and they want their drug back. Like you're, you're really going in the way back machine, but he was that kind of like, if he drank a little bit and it made him sick and that aversive experience worked for him and, and even had a whole dynamic going on where I think his wife gave him his pill every morning. And that was part of their inner, like him taking that pill was the symbol of, for her, of him committing to another day of sobriety and that and that way worked for him for years wow wow i and yeah i i don't because i'm half asian and i i i wound up with that asian gene that does not have the alcohol dehydrogenase yeah. drinking for me is only marginally enjoyable on certain occasions yeah i pay a big price no matter what i think actually like I'd have to look it up to be sure, but I think antabuse is basically that times 10. Yeah. That, like that's exactly what that is. It's, it's just stopping the action of alcohol dehydrogenase. So I don't, I don't, I don't have that issue because of my genetic profile. I'm not, I don't have the Asian gene that can drink because there's Asians that can drink mm -hmm. and there's Asians that can't drink. Yeah. Right. And then my father, you know, would be a classic alcoholic, a functional alcoholic. Because mm -hmm. you can just go and go and go. You can go, he enjoyed it. I see that, but it, it also took him, you know, it, it 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 became the controlling thing in his life, right? It was his mm -hmm. escape. And I, I saw that, you know, and this is where we, we want to go into the psychology and about getting your metabolism healthy because, you know, you have to be able to deal with the struggles of life. And, and I think you know, he came from a, a, there's a family history you can trace back on my grandmother's side of the family that had alcohol abuse in, in the family. Uh, and, but one of my early adopters, John Rutherford, who's a superb athlete, and he was in the faster study and he recorded the highest published uh, fat oxidation at 1.7 in the eight in the fat study. But I remember asking him why he punched out after a couple of tours of duty in Afghanistan and Iraq flying F-18s. Mm -hmm. um, he and he went very similar career track to Meg. He, he was in the Marine Corps, but as soon as he finished a couple of tours, 
he got nominated to become the White House liaison for the Secretary of the Navy. Mm -hmm. So he was he was serving the, the black man in the White House during those, those years. Yeah. Um, and now and now guess and now he's now he is at he's the foreign service officer attached to NATO mm. Brussels and he speaks Russian. Wow. His first post was in Russian. But anyway, back to this whole thing of psychology, reward, um, and being able to deal with, you know, the mundane things that we have to deal with with reg to, to navigate regular life. I asked him why he punched out from flying F-18s. And he said, you know, I've seen a lot of people that, you know, when you get to fly something like that, everything else is, is you know, mm -hmm. less. And you can't deal with that. And that probably profiled my father to a certain extent because he flew jets in the early part of the jet age and then became a, a pilot for Pan American and, and I think that that's where it really kind of got started but you know when you're flying jets and you're kind of like you know this demigod because mm -hmm. that's what they make them out that's what they make these fighter pilots out to be uh, it kind of sets up some unrealistic expectations yeah yeah you can't really find that feeling anyplace else <laughs> and how do you reconcile that you know on a psychological level without turning to something that leads to you know psychosis and depression and the things that you deal with mm -hmm. yeah no, no, i'll i'll let you know when i figure it out yeah i mean i mean it's the same thing with you dealing with with what you were dealing with in anbar province i mean you have guys who are um dealing with real real life and death issues right and they're mm -hmm. they're seeing people who literally have their back you know getting shot up killed um and you know we're so far removed it's kind of funny because i say that modern technology is pinging primitive fight or flight mechanisms mm -hmm. in us psychologically that weren't meant to be pinged on a chronic basis and and so you have these people who are in actual really extreme things like guys you were dealing with in ambar province mm -hmm. right those are those are real traumas they are but I mean, as we're, we're kind of, I think we're almost running out of time here, but I'll, yeah. I'll say something really provocative because that's what I like to do. The natural state of humans is war. So that conflict, we, we can talk about trauma, but, you know, 20, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years of relative peace. That's what's weird. And that you know, 99 plus percent of all of human history, humans are living by tooth and by claw. So that I've, I've actually been asked to give a presentation on PTSD in about a year. I have, I think I have about 10 months to, to write this thing and put it together. And one of the, I'm, I'm hoping 10 months is enough time for me to get it through my head how I want to express that, that I'm not convinced, I'm not convinced that what we think of as trauma we should think of as trauma because I, I'll, I, I'll be with you on that i think the trauma is that that these events cannot be reconciled with the modern world concur and then you know just, 
just to be a one note guy and put it all together. I also think that those events, I'm not sure that your brain is plastic enough to deal with all those events when it's hyperinsulinemic. There you go. Like that might actually be the major problem. And, you know, in all wars in U.S. history, the, the rate of what we now call PTSD is about 15 percent. It's like it's been stable. So from from the time anybody ever looked into it, you know, maybe going back to World War One, we call it battle fatigue or shell shock. But it's always about 15 percent. So it's a it's a really, really similar proportion of people, about one in six that will be diagnosed with PTSD. So that that goes back to your point about two unrelated people living in a house together, both getting dementia. Like the the question is, what is it about one in six people that makes them vulnerable? Everyone was in the same freaking war, and but only one out of six really get PTSD. Well, so let's, you, let's let's reframe that. So everybody gets traumatized quote unquote traumatized because we live in the world where everything's trauma. Remember, we don't talk about sticks and stones now. We talk about pronouns. Well, <laughs> right? I'll, I'll put it, I'll put it this way. I'll think of it like an athlete. We all get hurt the same, but only one out of six got injured. Right. And and we're not talking about how trauma, whether it's through physical training or a war can make us better because you see how so many people like these people you know one in six get the the pathological ptsd whereas mm -hmm. others for others it you know one of the good things about the military the camaraderie that exists it creates a man who's not narcissistic who has a bigger sense of purpose for himself and goes on to do great things i mean you're one of those examples john rutherford i mean i see this with a lot of the people i work with who have military backgrounds mm -hmm that they they don't become battle hardened they become you know the 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 stress of of those situations makes them more cognizant and and probably to a point why we've had an extended period of peace because those people knew what it really meant and were doing the things that were needed to do to to keep us from going into human conflict because when you see human conflict for what it is you recognize that we don't, you know, most of the population do, in at least in the, the the Western world doesn't know just how much conflict there is out there. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. in terms in terms of the reality of it. So, um, but they also, and that's the thing. It's like people look at what they can see in front of them, and they draw their conclusions on that, but so much happens on an unseen level and this is what why we're having this conversation it's like uh, that unseen level is that that underlying metabolism and its impact on on you know our mental emotional health yeah yeah anything you'd like to add to that uh, no no i think we're good i just i have a lot of hope for this pirate ship you're building <laughs> yeah well i think i think that we're gonna you know, thanks to people like you, we're going to have it go. And, uh, you know, it's like, it's been really amazing. Our conversations, I look forward to more and, and bringing in more collaborators because I'm, you know, this conversation really has me thinking about all the other pieces. And like, like I said, Dr. Navio's cell danger response, and then how that applies to brain function.
right? Mm -hmm. And what you're doing. So cool. Well, thanks a lot, Will, for your time on this. And thanks for being on our medical advisory committee. And and um, let's, let's start putting things in action. I was flattered to be asked, man. I'm excited. <laughs>